Welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold, the sports car market podcast. Market experts and car friends for over 30 years, Keith Martin and Mark Green have come together through their mutual love for collector cars. Keith and Mark will take you on a ride into the collector car market, talking with industry experts, helping you navigate your collector car journey so that you know when to make your own decisions to buy, sell, or hold. Hello and welcome. I'm Mark Green from the Cars Yeah Podcast. And I'm Keith Martin from Sports Car Market Magazine. Welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold, what we like to call the essence of collecting. And this is going to be our show number eight. So Keith, good morning. How are you doing today? I am ready, Mark, for a great show today. I'm ready for a great week. I'm ready for a great month. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be a fun show. This is our first guest from across the pond, as they say. We've got Simon Kitson calling in from the UK, which is going to be kind of fun. And I wanted to ask your opinion before we get him on the line here. It's up early where the sun is shining. We're having a nice day here. But I want to talk about the differences between European collectors, European cars, and the United States collectors specifically, because I see kind of a distinct difference in the two. And you have some unique perspectives on that. So what say you, Keith? Well, let me say, Mark, the first time I met uh, Simon, uh, we were racing over there, and he was in a Carrera RS, driving it flat out. And I thought, you know, in the U.S., that's a, a car that you keep hidden away and you polish, but you don't ever take it out and hammer on it. Europeans find value in use with their collector cars. There, You go over there, and you see the cars they've got, uh, empty coffee cups laying in them. I mean, because Europeans smoke more than we do, you'll see crumpled up cigarette packs. My theory, Mark, is that Europe, you know, was destroyed in World War II, destroyed in World War One. They have things be seen, things be destroyed and brought back, and I believe they're that way with their cars. Use the car and bring it back. Use it and bring it back. Don't just do what Americans do, which is you take the same car and re-restore and re-restore and re-restore, make it better than perfect, and then slide it away in a climate-controlled garage. Use your cars. That's what they do. Yeah, well, you know, this is good because Keith and I banter back and forth. We we kind of are, are somewhat polar opposites when it comes to cars. I'm that crazy fool that polishes and rubs and doesn't enjoy my cars enough. And I'm going through a little bit of a difficulty with that. And this weekend, Keith took his, uh, that you've heard on the show, the what I call the Mighty Blue Volvo. He likes to call the Elf. And, and uh, you kind of indoctrinated it with your son, right? You went to a little eating haberdashery hello uh, uh, fun <laughs> we went to a road on a road trip and we stopped at mcdonald's he had uh, chicken tenders uh which he ate in the car i think he might have spilled some of the sauce onto this oh, seat. oh my gosh that doesn't bother you does it uh, you're starting to upset me here what you're saying earlier i need need some of that blood pressure medication but you're you're good for me keith you're loosening me up a little bit and i appreciate I my child look my daughter too who's 20 they grew up Thinking that a car is just a thing that you're in and you're enjoying yourself. When I say, when I see people say, don't touch that car, don't get close, don't eat in my car. Well, what's that tell the kid about a relationship with a car? They can never have one. Uh, I believe, I believe the kids should be in the car. I've got a picture of my Porsche Turbo when I had it with Bradley with a big slice of pizza in his mouth with his feet on the dash and the cheese kind of dripping over onto the carpet. Oh, you know how to rub my or push my buttons, I should say here. And now I'm going to have to go to therapy and talk about how I've misraised my children. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I, I think this is great, though. And I think it's important. And I think we're going to learn a lot here from Simon today yep. about the differences. He's uh, tremendously well known around the world in the automotive uh, 
marketplace, buying, selling cars, and of course, he knows how to drive. So we'll be back in a few minutes. But first, here's a little special offer from Keith's team before we bring Simon on the show. Mark Green here. I have subscribed to Sports Car Market Magazine for decades. While I've dropped most of my other car magazine subscriptions, Sports Car Market is the one I'll never let go. It's a hold. Getting it monthly in my mailbox brings a huge smile to my face. Sports Car Market Magazine is filled with great articles and market updates on collector car values. It's a virtual treasure trove of value. Even the advertisements are fun to watch. Boy, I've got a deal for you. You're going to get $10 off your print subscription simply by using the code BSH on their website. Go to sportscarmarket.com slash BSH, use the code BSH, and get 10 bucks off your print subscription of Sports Car Market Magazine. That's a deal. That's code BSH at sportscarmarket.com slash BSH and get $10 off your print subscription today. All right. Well, welcome back to Buy, Sell, Hold. Keith, we've got somebody very special on the line today calling in all the way from Switzerland, right? Yes. Today we have uh, Simon Kidston on Buy, Sell, Hold. Absolutely. Simon Kidston is known around the world as a multilingual classic car commentator and columnist, consultant, and entrepreneur. Above all, he is recognized as a deeply knowledgeable advisor on the purchase and sale of rare classic automobiles. The company Simon founded in 2006, Kidston SA, has been responsible for the sale of some of the world's highest valued motor cars. Simon developed his knowledge through an early working life in the auction world, co-founding Geneva-based Brooks Europe, later known as Bonhams, and staging some of the most glamorous classic car sales ever experienced. More recently, Simon devised and launched K500, an online resource that gives honest opinion and unbiased insight into the automotive collector car market. And if you're an avid reader of Sports Car Market, no doubt you have read many of his articles. Simon, welcome to Buy, Sell, Hold. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. And thank you for a major bigging up, as I believe they call it. (laughs) Well, here we go. Nice to hear from you as well, Keith. Thank you. So, Simon, the way we start this off, usually we ask uh, ask the guest, you, to describe the collector car market in just one word. But I'd like to ask you for two words for two markets. One word to describe the American collector car market and why you choose that word. And one word to describe the European car market and why you choose that word. Let's start with the American market. What, how would you describe it in one word? Pragmatic. I think the American market is much more about getting deals done, whether or not they're exactly in line with the last similar car that was bought or sold. And that cuts both ways. Uh, A seller wanting to sell something is less likely to hold out for exactly the same price that the last one made uh, because he feels that his car should be worth that. And equally, a buyer I don't think is beholden to paying not a penny more than the last car was sold for. Uh, if we look across the pond at Europe, uh, the market I would describe in one word as hesitant. People here are not sure which way the world is going. Uh, I think it's fair to say that both culturally and economically for a long time, America has provided the lead for Europe. There are, of course, far more great classic cars in America than any other country in the world. 
America has become the center for the trading of those cars, whereas it used to be 30 years ago when I started uh, Europe and specifically London. And now European collectors in many ways uh, in many ways, take their leads from America. So if you look at the percentages of cars sold at auction, the value of cars sold at auction, and privately as well to some extent, I would say America now leads the way, and Europe tends to a larger extent to follow on behind. Thanks, Simon. So the backstory on buy, sell, hold is when you think about it, collections and the collecting world is really made of those three actions, the cars you decide to buy, the cars you decide to sell, and the cars you decide to hold. What we're going to talk about today with you is three memorable cars, a buy, a sell, and a hold. Let's talk about the buy with a car that was very special to you, how you chased it down, why you decided you wanted it, and how you put the deal together. As you well know, in my case, that that could apply to many of my more harebrained purchases. Uh, If I narrow it down, I guess, to just one, I would probably use as an example my Mercedes-Benz Gullwing, uh, which is just a silver Gullwing like many others around the world. Great car, something I love to use, but something that took an extraordinary amount of time and effort to buy. Uh, I'll try and keep it reasonably brief, but when I was a student at university, which which didn't last very long, which is why I had to had to find a job in the classic car world instead, I started to take a, an interest in some of the cars that my father had owned uh, many decades before, basically when they were when they were new. My father was born in 1910, and as I was born in 67, um, I was a, a fairly late arrival in his life. By which time he'd had had and sold most of these most of these exciting exciting cars, but I guess in the in the in the my in my late teens I sort of started rummaging through all of his old paperwork relating to, to cars. And as he as he was a a naval officer in his youth, he was quite methodical about keeping paperwork and making sure that everything was always very very carefully filed. And I came across the correspondence with the Mercedes Benz factory from 1955. Uh, when he had ordered a new Gullwing, he'd chosen the colors, he looked at the options very carefully, and when the car was finally ready, he had traveled to, to Stuttgart and collected the car at the factory. There was, a, there was a, a picture of him and various other owners standing proudly at the factory in, in April in their, in their overcoats, ready to collect their cars. And then he'd driven it immediately to the Nürburgring. There was still the receipt for the hotel from that night. There was the gasoline receipt even. There was the, the business card of the Mercedes-Benz uh, salesman who handed over the car to him, et cetera, et cetera. All of this, all the way through until he sold the car in 1961. All the trips that he'd taken, the, the going to see the Millimilia with the car and, and, and so on and so forth. And then the trail went cold. And I thought, I wonder what happened to that car. I, by this stage or soon afterwards, got my first job in the in the car world at a, at a classic car dealership in London. And one of my first things that I did in my in my spare time there, age 21, was to to start asking people in the Gullwing community, have you ever heard of this particular car? And I had the chassis number, but I didn't know where in the world it had gone to. Eventually, somebody said to me, oh, I think it's gone to Canada. And they gave me a name. And I still got the post-it note. And then somebody else said, ah, oh, but after Canada, I've got a feeling that it went to a dealer in Switzerland. So I wrote to the guy in Canada, Robert Nicholson. I remember his name. No answer. Didn't even know if he was still alive. Wrote to the dealer in Switzerland. No answer. 
you know, fast forward a few a few more years because I had plenty of other more important things to do in the meantime. Contacted the dealer in Switzerland. No, I've never heard that. Never heard of that car. Never had it. Hung up on me. Sort of gave gave up for a few years more. Then, you know, somebody else said to me, Glenn Munger, in fact, Glenn Munger at Pebble Beach, by a few, fast forward a, a good few years, and I'd become a judge at Pebble Beach. And Glenn said to me, Oh, do you know, I've got a feeling that car might be in Seattle. So jump on a plane, go to Seattle. A man's just died. Car's being sold by the executors. Dead end, different car. This went on for, for years and years. And I went all over the world looking for this silver gullwing, which is like looking for a needle in a, in a collector car haystack. Eventually, another person said to me, do you know what? I've got a feeling that car may be in Switzerland. And I distinctly remember I was at the Peter Mullen Museum opening in uh, in Oxnard in California in, in 2010. And I was doing a, a film of the opening for him and, and doing the, the, the voiceover, the commentary. And I said, for some reason, I said to my assistant back in Geneva, do you know what? Just call up the lady that you know at the local DMV, effectively. And I know she's not supposed to tell you, but just ask her if this chassis number is registered in Switzerland. Two days later, she, she called me up and she said, you're not going to believe this, but I've spoken to this lady and she slipped me a little note and she said, it is registered in Switzerland and this is the person that it's registered oh, to. Oh my gosh. Wow. I could, I, I could not believe it. The trouble was I could also not get a flight back to Europe because there was a volcano, the ash cloud, uh, and all, all flights were, were suspended over, over the Atlantic. And so I was holed up as you do at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. There are worse places to be stuck. <laughs> Sorry to hear And, that. um, <laughs> and, <laughs> anyway, at about three in the morning, my assistant called me to say, I've got you a, a flight. It doesn't go to Geneva. It goes to Rome, but there's a, there's a car that can drive you all the way from Rome to Geneva, which is about it's the thick end of a thousand miles. Anyway, I, I drive my little Toyota Prius hire car. I can't believe I tell you that. Um, from the peninsula to LA, LAX, leave it on the, on the sidewalk outside, run in, get the flight, fly all the way to, to Rome. There is a, Mercedes-Benz sitting outside the airport waiting for me with a, with a driver, which is ironic as the car was laid on for me by BMW, who are the, uh, the hosts of Villa Deste, which I was supposed to commentate just a few days later. We drive all the way to Geneva. I jump into my own car and I drive all the way to the little village where this car is located, which ironically, after all that, is the same Alpine village where I went to school. And the garage has to, is, is on a road that I must have driven past probably five, 500 times in my life. Now, this guy doesn't know me from, from, from Adam, from, from a complete stranger. So just to make sure that he doesn't think I'm some complete fruitcake, I call up the owner of the local luxury hotel, the Palace Hotel, where I used to organize the Ferrari auctions for many years. And I say, do you know this guy? Yes. Would you mind making an introduction? I said, sure, I'll happily do that. So he is there as well. And this guy is a local builder. But in Alpine resorts, the builders are seldom poor because they're used to building expensive chalets for very wealthy people. But this guy is in jeans and a, and a check shirt. And he looks like you know the sort of guy that comes and puts up a fence for you until he opens the garage. And there in his garage is my father's gullwing, which I have never before set, set eyes upon. And he, he says to me in, in Swiss German, which I don't speak, uh, Mr. Kidston, here are the keys, take it and have fun. So the owner of the hotel and I get into my dad's car, hugely emotional, and drive off up the road in this thing um, at a fair rate of knots on a beautiful summer's, a summer's day. And it, it is, I have to say, one of the best drives and most emotional drives of my life. My father had been dead for 20 plus years. And I did think to myself, gosh, what would he think if, if he could see his son now driving this, this car, which I knew he was a, a, a 
attached to because he, he he left me a note of all of his cars and he wrote, he wrote more about that car than most of the others. Anyway, I said to the guy after this after this test drive, "Thank you so much. Let's go to lunch." And by the way, would you sell the car? Nice, very you know, very polite Swiss German smile, and they're not known for great displays of emotion. And he says basically, "No, thank you." But I pursue this guy, this poor guy, like some kind of some kind of serial stalker. I sent him hampers of whiskey and champagne and cakes at Christmas, at uh, New Year, etc., etc. Uh, every time I go up there, I, I leave him a gift, and he usually doesn't respond to me because he obviously thinks I'm a complete nutcase. Eventually, he does say to me on the telephone, "Mr. Kidston, if you ever had a gullwing in the same color and in, with Swiss plates on it and in good condition." maybe I might consider a swap. So you can imagine what I did next. I went out and I found a gullwing with Swiss papers and in silver and in beautiful condition and with rudge wheels, which as you probably know is an expensive option and quite a rare one. And I said to him, would you trade it? Silence. (laughs) This, This same routine goes on. So I did warn you, this is a long story. This routine goes on for another, believe it or not, eight years until finally, finally, he says to me, Okay, I've spoken to my father. I should add, by the way, that his father gave him the car a few years earlier because he wasn't using it. And he gave his brother a 300 SL Roadster at the same time. I did tell you that Swiss builders are never poor. And eventually, in October 2018, I drive my beautiful, shiny, restored, rudged, original wheel going up to Gestad. And I hand the man the keys to my car, and in return, I get the, the keys to a scruffy car with normal wheels that's been looked after for the last 30 years by the local taxi garage, and I do a straight swap. Wow. It has to be the worst financial deal of my life, but the best emotional one. What a story. That's awesome. Sorry, I mean, it was so, sorry it was so No, long. we were all on pins and needles wondering if you're going to get the car back. I think it's great. Well, let, <laughs> I did get the car back, and I hasten to add that I broke home on the broke down on the way home. Well, that adds to the flavor of the entire adventure, doesn't it? What a marvelous story! Well, let's talk about a significant vehicle that you've let go—the sold story, like we say here. Uh, that vehicle, what was it, and uh, why did you let it go? Uh, that's uh, that's a good one. I'm just thinking. I mean, there, I, I've been better at buying cars than I have been at uh, at selling them. I will try and keep this one a little bit a little bit shorter. About ten years ago, I finally managed to I finally realized my ambition of buying a McLaren F1, which I have to say, when I was younger, when the car first came out, was not really something that I particularly aspired to. It was, I suppose, a different period of car in that from that that I was interested in, and also um, way beyond my financial means. But Cut a long story short, I was doing a, a film, or a docu- shooting a documentary in Bahrain on, on supercars, and I decided that we'd feature one car from each decade. So there was the Gullwing, the Mura, the F40, the Kuntash, and, and of course the McLaren F1, and, and incidentally the Veyron for the, for the 2000s. And I went to Bahrain to, to film an F1, and a friend of mine had a, he had a, still has in fact an F1 GTR. And I was able to drive all the other cars in this series and do a piece to camera, which I don't do as well as Keith, but I enjoy doing. The only car that I couldn't drive for insurance reasons was the F1. So the guy had a professional driver who, who was employed by him and he said, he'll take you out on the road and, and give you some, give you an impression of what this car is like. So we got buckled, I got buckled up in the passenger seat of the F1, the professional driver in the central seat, orange car, GTR. I don't even know whether it had license plates on it, if I'm honest, but the, the owner, um, 
let's say, has some has some connections to the higher echelons of the country, so it wasn't a problem. We blasted off in this thing, and I will never forget the face. I should say, I should never forget the vision of the cyclist that we passed at probably about 200 miles an hour, and the way he was bobbing from side to side in the rearview mirror of this car as the as the airflow of our passage hit him. And by the time I got to the airport that night and all the flights leave for Europe at about two in the morning, I distinctly remember on my mobile phone to the owner of of an F1 in Europe, as I was putting my luggage on the the security um, conveyor saying, would you sell your F1? I was absolutely hooked. Anyway. That also took another three years until I was able to, to, I suppose, wear him down and find somehow enough money to buy this car, although they're, of course, a lot cheaper than they are today. And eventually, I managed to agree with this this friend, client, that he would sell me his, his McLaren F1. The day finally arrives when I go to collect the car at the McLaren factory. And I should add, by the way, that a few years before, I'd sold another F1 um, with chassis number 007 on behalf of the of the first owner. And let me tell you that nobody wanted this car. This was in September 98. The car had 400 kilometers on the clock, black, delivered new to Geneva, you know, just all the things that I personally would like also being something of, a, of an old James Bond fan. But I could not find who owns the car. I had sold it to a guy who owned a, a nightclub in Yorkshire. Go figure. Obviously, <laughs> we know that nightclubs are as successful as Swiss builders. And then after it, it, it had disappeared and the guy said, oh, I've sold it to somebody in the States. I don't know where it's gone. So I sort of made a run, tried to find that car and not succeeded. I go to collect my new purchase, silver McLaren F1 from the factory. The the curtain is revealed. There is the car. I am incredibly happy about this car. But what is sitting behind it in McLaren? You can guess, right? <laughs> Chassis 007 Seven, in yeah. black. There you I go. thought, damn it, I've bought the McLaren of my dreams and then the one that I really would have wanted is sitting behind. And I don't even know whether it's whether it's for sale or whether it who the owner is or whatever. I think you know, it's almost like you get your Christmas present, but then you realize that your brother's got a better present than you, but you which you can't have. So anyway, got the car, super super happy, but still thinking, damn it, I wish I wish I'd known, I wish I'd known about double chassis double o seven. A few days later, I get a call in my office, and one of the girls says to me, Simon, there's somebody on on line two. Some guy in America wants to sell a car. Like, okay, here we go. It's about eight o'clock at night, ready to go home. But I take the call. Hi, my name is such and such. I'm calling from America. I'm told that you're, you know, I think you know quite a lot about McLaren F1s. I have a car I'd like to sell. McLaren F1, chassis 007. No way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't bloody believe it. And I said, well, that's interesting. You know what? I would have been a buyer of your car, except for the fact that I bought one last week. But do you know what? I'll gladly help you to sell it. Anyway. We we talk and, and we send him a proposal about the sale of the car and so on and so forth. And then he says to me, after a few days, you know what, I'd actually just rather sell it. I don't really want to give you a mandate. Would you not be interested in buying the car? So I think to myself, okay, I need to find a buyer for my car if I can buy his. I call up I call up from a client and I said I said to him, look, you know, I I've got a McLaren F1. I might I might consider selling it, but if not, there's a there's there is always a black car if you don't if there's an alternative. He said to me. No, Simon, I'd never buy a black car, but I would buy a silver car. What color is yours? I said, that's right, it's silver. <laughs> Simon, do you buy lottery tickets so, very often? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Anyway, cut a long story short, within uh, about about a five-minute conversation, he owned a silver McLaren F1, and one day later, I owned a black McLaren F1. 
Now, the smart thing history has told us would have been for me not to sell that silver McLaren F1 because it turned out to be a rather good investment. But it already took a huge amount of persuasion for my wife to allow me to buy just one McLaren F1, which which I hasten to add also involved remortgaging our, our home. But of course, you know, isn't isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? So if there's one car I should never have sold, it was that McLaren F1, but at least I bought another. Another wonderful story. Very good. <laughs> Sorry. Listen, that's okay. No, you, I, I wish you, I could keep I, I would like to keep them shorter. No, this Apologies is great. Apologies in advance to your well, long suffering listeners. We've enjoyed it. Let's take a short break. We're gonna thank our sponsors from Keith's team. Uh they've got something special for our listeners, and we'll be right back. I've been subscribing to Sports Car Market Magazine for decades, and it shows up like clockwork in my mailbox every month. But what about when I'm on the road? Did you know that digital subscriptions to Sports Car Market are just $2.50 a month when you sign up with the promo code DIGITAL50? That's less than a cup of coffee. You get 50% off regular price just for listening here to buy, sell, hold. Plus, digital subscribers receive instant access to a year's worth of back issues and the exclusive Insider's Guide, including the 2020 Insider's Guide to the beautiful Amelia Island Concourse and all the spring auctions as well. No more boredom while sitting at the airport or on your flight. To get your Sports Car Market digital subscription at this discount, go to sportscarmarket.com slash digital50. Your order will automatically get you the 50% off. What a deal. Go and sign up today at sportscarmarket.com slash digital50. So, Simon, we've talked about a buy and a sell. Let's talk about a car that's near to your heart, a car that you would never let go of, and why. Can I make it two cars, Keith, or do you have to have just the one? Simon, normally it's just one, but for you, today, on Buy, Sell, Hold, we're going to make an exception. Mark, we can't make these exceptions all the time. Yes. <laughs> just for Simon. Keith, I Simon. bet you say that to all the girls. <laughs> the stories are just too darn good, Simon. <laughs> I appreciate Keith. Uh, I'm sure it's going to cost me an extra page of advertising, but I will, I, I appreciate it. Let me give, let me give you two and tell you, and tell you why those two are special to me. One of them is another family car. It's a 1973 Porsche Carrera RS 2.7. We talked earlier. That's the car I I met you in when we were both in, uh, was it the Modena Cento Ora or the maybe Tour Auto? I was driving an Alpha, a little GTA, and I, you were in the Carrera RS. Uh, that, do you know what? That was not that Carrera RS. I was the co-driver in that car. That was a Carrera RS lightweight that I had sold to a good friend of mine, Anthony McLean. Uh, I sat in the passenger seat of that car for six days, and I will never spend another uh, or <laughs> another another hour or a minute more than I need to in the passenger seat of a Carrera RS lightweight. It was okay, clearly a car ahead, not built for comfort. Here. The two cars I would keep are my 1973 Carrera RS and my 1973 Lamborghini Miura, and I'll tell you why. The Carrera RS is, is probably the first car that I remember from my motoring childhood. Uh, That car came down the driveway when I was five years old, nearly six years old in in 1973. My dad had ordered it a few months earlier. The people from Porsche had come to see him. They told him, look, you're an existing client. We're building a limited edition. We're going to make 200 of them. Would you like one? And he, he said, he said, yes. What color would you like? And he said, oh, well, I, I saw on the French motorway when I was driving uh, a yellow Porsche and the owner, I, oh, I believe the color is called Signal Yellow. 
Okay, fine. A few months later, probably, probably, probably rather, rather um, more months than they promised, but nonetheless, a few months later, this car turned up in the driveway, and it was a, it was a bright orange yellow that my my dad made almost had my dad faint when he saw it because he was expecting something very soft and mellow and relatively well, as understated as, as a yellow car can be. Instead, this sort of this basically egg yolk yellow car turned up. But he he kept it. He took me to school in it, much to my embarrassment. I will always remember the day when I was in the passenger seat of that car. We were going down a, a, a local tree-lined avenue, and for whatever reason, he put his foot down, and all these school kids who were walking in the same direction turned around to see what it was that had made that noise. And I have to say, that day, I thought my dad and the car were the coolest things in the world. There were times when he thought of selling it because he didn't use it very much, especially when he was you know, older and his in his. Uh, in his 80s. I still remember the day that I first drove it. He was away on a trip to England. We, we lived in Italy, I should add. And my a letter came through from the local Porsche dealer saying, bring your car in, we'll give you a free checkup. And I persuaded my mother that it was a very good idea to give me, with a driving license that was barely six months old, the opportunity to take this car in because we were going to get a freebie checkup. So I, I drove this thing down the driveway. Uh, the, the key was taken out of, out of my father's locked desk, given to me, very rash. I drove it down the driveway thinking I was the, the coolest kid in the world. I must have been probably, I don't know, 17, 18. And, um, and that was my first experience of Porsche understeer in and out of corners. Uh, but I managed to keep it on the keep it on the road. Drove it down the motorway. Uh, I remember curbing it when I was reversing up to the garage. Um, but I do remember the, the staff at the garage saying they could not believe they'd never seen a 15-year-old car that, that still looked so new. But anyway, that's as I say, the car that um, I've always managed to keep in the family. It's the car that I asked my dad to leave me in his will, and it's the car that I would. Sounds silly, but I would. There's no amount of money in the world, or no no car that I could, I that somebody could offer me that I would that would make me part with that car. Yeah, uh, apart from nothing, nothing financially. It's just it's just yeah. a great all round car. And I will add that the only thing that's gone wrong with it in 47 years is that once the sunroof stuck open because the fuse blew. Typical German car does never fails. And that's also a car that you look at it sometimes and you think, well, it looks quite cool, but is it that special? And then you drive it and you think, yeah, and now I remember why, why that car has always been so good. The other car, I, I grew up watching the Italian job, that, that 1969 film, which I only discovered years later as a, as a school kid. But the sight of that Lamborghini Miura being driven over the Alps by a cool Italian with wraparound shades and a, and a loose tie around his neck and a cigarette out the corner of his mouth, I just thought that was dead cool. Also, because that happened to be the, 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 the same mountain road that I was driven to my school every at the beginning and end of every term and although not not in a mirror sadly so i fell in love with the lamborghini mirror when i had the the opportunity to finally buy a mirror um i looked at a mirror p400 i looked at a mirror s but then i you know you, you, you know keith you know how it is with these things you look at one thing and you think well for a little bit more money i could buy this or a little bit more i could buy that and you just keep on going until you're way out of your depth and then you finally buy the car that your head says you shouldn't, but that your heart says you should. So I did buy a Mira SV. I bought a right-hand drive Mira SV. Of course, it broke down the first time I took it out. In fact, the smoke started coming from the dashboard, which wasn't great because my wife was in the passenger seat. The dinner that we booked that night at a lovely hotel was basically eaten by her on her own whilst I was outside in the rain with the man from the breakdown service with a, a torch trying to figure out why the car was still smoldering. 
Um, but after two years of, uh, of learning a lot about Italian mechanics, I was able, once again, this is a familiar pattern, to trade up and to buy the mirror that I had always wanted that, that came available in, in Sweden, which was the last car built. It was a Mira SV with a, a unique specification and it was black. As you can see, I like black cars and it was delivered new to Milan to a cool 21 year old playboy for his birthday. And I still have that car 20, 20 something years later. We have broken down together in Kuwait, California, Spain, France, Switzerland, Italy. I don't think England yet. Uh, but I have to say for the last 10 years of ownership, since it's been re-restored and sorted, it's never let me down. We've won our class at Pebble Beach back in 2013, the Lamborghini class with Valentino Balboni driving. And incidentally, it was the first car that he ever test drove as a young man at Lamborghini. And that is the car that my kids always say, I want it, I want you to leave it to me, which always makes me think that I must look slightly ill, but a very special car to me. <laughs> no doubt. Keith has a very challenging question for you, Simon. Uh, this last question, I think, might be, well, I don't know. We'll see where we go. Take it away, Keith. So, Simon, let's think about a car that you don't own that you think would be the perfect all-around collector car, the combination of style, usability, mechanicals. What would you pick as the perfect car for all the different things that you do, a car that you don't own now? Uh, a Ferrari 250 GTO would be an obvious choice. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how many of your of your readers have founded a tech company or won the lottery. I I always thought, oh, how can it can it really be that good? Until somebody actually lent me one for a day. It was the GTO tour, and the poor chap had pneumonia, and his mechanic mis misguidedly gave me the keys. But without without wishing to sound too blasé, that really is the ultimate all-round car. Nick Mason famously uh, took his uh, his kids to school in his. If I exclude two cars that I own, which I think are fantastic all-rounders, 2.7 RS and a Gullwing, it would probably come down to something like, if it's something affordable, I'm going to say really a Porsche 911. It uh, doesn't have to be an RS, but something like a 2.4 liter S it's reasonably affordable, it's reliable, it's comfortable, it's got luggage space, it's got good visibility, it sounds great, a lot of period style, a few bit of Steve McQueen connotations. You know, there's a reason why Porsche have made millions of 911s. You know, they're just good cars. And I think if I had to advise somebody to buy one car to do everything, that would probably be it. Ah, you're near and dear to my heart, my friend. <laughs> so let's talk, Simon, about business for a second. How has the market today, the market in Europe and the market in the US, how has it affected your business, your company, and your collecting? The market today has polarized. At the top end, there are still, I'd say, inevitably wealthy and frequently experienced collectors who are keen to get the first call when something exceptional comes up for sale. That has not changed. There are fewer collectors out there to buy the very, very best cars. There's, there's no doubt about that because to a large extent, the speculators who made up a significant part of the market have caught a cold and have retreated from the market. But nonetheless, there are still enough people out there to buy the great, the great cars in this world. The just so cars, the cars that you can easily repeat have gone down in value and their market is much more volatile, which I think is, is the way it, it should be. We find that there is more demand for what the Germans nickname young timers. These are the 
on a, on a more humble level, the CLK DTM Mercedes, on a, on a more exalted level, the CLK GTRs, the Porsche, Porsche GT1s, uh, Bugatti EB110s, and of course, McLaren F1s. Those cars, not that long ago, were hard to sell. Nowadays, they are, they are hot property. The pre-war market, we sell less of now than we used to. The Alpha 8Cs, the Bugattis, and, and Invictors, and Bentleys, and Rolls Royces, and so forth. Those cars, tend to appeal to an older demographic and people buy those cars because they want them and to use them, not to speculate. So our business has evolved. We find ourselves probably having to buy more cars now than we used to, given that uh, consigning cars has become more difficult, more challenging. Uh, people aren't always willing to give you long-term mandates. People often often want to do a deal and to do it immediately, so they don't want to commit to a to a consignment. Although that is still uh, our preferred way of operating, we do more with the Middle East now than we used to. We opened a small office in Dubai two years ago, and I spend a fair amount of my time going backwards and forwards to, to the Middle East, uh, places like Dubai, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, and so on. Um, and of course, there was the first, as, as Keith will know, the first uh, Concorde in Dubai started a couple of years ago. I do, and my colleagues, a lot of business in America. So we spent a lot of time on, the, on both the West and the East Coast and, and the other centers such as Florida, Texas, and, and Seattle, and so on. We always do a lot of business in, in mainland Europe. England, with Brexit, has been slightly cut off for the last three years. Now that there's been a, an election in the UK, that has given a little bit of certainty. It's also provided a bit of comfort for people who are concerned about taxes going up and uh, and greater restrictions being placed on the use of classic cars. So I think the English market is coming back to some extent. But the market as a whole now is definitely has definitely polarized. We are 20 to 30 percent off the peaks in many cases of uh, 2014, 2015. But I think that going forward, the outlook is stable in the same way that a Picasso will always be a Picasso. A great car will always be a great car. Its value will fluctuate. There's no question about it, but it will always have a value and there will always be a home for it. Simon, you are a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I knew this was going to be a fun talk today. Before we let you go, could you offer our listeners maybe just one little piece of wisdom and guidance when it comes to their buying, holding, and selling great cars? A Jewish friend of mine said to me that his grandfather gave him some good advice. He said, I only buy the best because I can't afford to buy the second best. I think that's a very good piece of advice. And with my, you know, everybody in the world has has resources that are in some way limited, no matter how exalted their, their situation might be. And so you have to allocate your what, what you can to, to your hobby and, and more to other things. Although I have to say that when I thought of buying the F1, if I can just interject, I mentioned to Miles Collier that my wife had said, what? That costs as much as a house. And he said to me, yeah, but tell her that you can, you can sleep in the car. You can't drive the house, and which, which, which turned out to be good advice. I think, you know, it's, it's the old saying, just buy the best. If you have the absolute best of something, whether it's an, an Alfa Romeo Duetto or a McLaren F1 or a Ferrari GTO or just an Austin Healey, whatever it might be, when the time comes to sell and the only thing that you need to discuss is the price it's a simple conversation. If, on the other hand, you have to defend the fact your car's got the wrong engine or, it, or it's the wrong model or it's American spec or it's the wrong color or it's restored by the wrong person, then you're always on the back foot. 
if you buy something which represents the absolute best of its kind, and that you can demonstrate that, because everybody, of course, tries to say that their car is the best, which implies they've seen every other one in existence. But if you can genuinely demonstrate that your car is the class of the field, then when the time comes to sell, you will always find a buyer. Uh, that's one thing I would always say to anybody. The other thing, frankly, which is perhaps counter to, I dare say, my own business, is you don't need to spend a lot of money to have fun. I have had as much fun with my humble Alfa Romeo Duetta, which was my first car, which I also, you're detecting a pattern here, also bought back, uh, as I have with anything else, including McLaren F1 or, or, or whatever other exalted car you, you might think of. It's not about how much power something has, how fast it is, how much it costs, or frankly, the investment potential. As Keith and I both know, it's all about savoring the moment and often like a good party, the spontaneity of it, who you're doing it with, where you're going, and the fact that you don't worry about getting it scratched or where you park it or whatever. You just you know, just enjoy the moment. And that's the great thing about, about cars. You know, They're not just mobile physically, but they take us to emotional places that we couldn't otherwise access. And ultimately, uh, my advice is just drive it. Well said. And how can people learn more about your business? Uh, they could look... Uh, on our website, which is kidston.com. If they are very bored, they could look on my Instagram and see me making a fool of myself with a lot of different cars, which is just <laughs> Simon Kidston. Uh, and they can always email me, simon at kidston.com, and always happy to have a car chat, as you can probably tell. Absolutely. I'll remind also, uh, Simon has a wonderful site, k500.com. You need to check this out. All right, did I get that right? I'm sorry, is it 500 or 550? Yeah, yeah, Mark, you're absolutely right. It's k k500.com, the k, k vanity 500, because we deal with the 500 most influential classic car models in the marketplace. And we really created that to try and bring some transparency to the market. People might think that it's to try and hype up the market. It's actually the opposite. It's to show people what, what cars have really sold for in auctions, much as, as Keith's magazine does as well. We do it on a sort of maybe, I could say, a more numerical basis, uh, looking back to 94 to create graphs for the progression of value of cars, to tell you what they're eligible for, to give them a star rating out of 100, etc., etc. But really, to, just to bring some transparency to the market and what you should expect to pay for something. There you go. Well, again, listeners, you can find all these links to these sites um, or to Simon's site on his very own show notes page on the Sports Car Market website. Just go to sportscarmarket.com slash podcast. It'll be right there, or you can find it on carsyeah.com as well. Simon, we could talk for hours. I know this has been really nice. Thank you for being so generous with your time and expertise today. This has been great. Mark, thank you very much. And to Keith as well. Apologies for being so verbose. You can tell I love talking about cars. <laughs> Uh, and see you guys on the road sometime. Thank you. See you. I look forward to seeing you soon, Simon. All right. Stay well. Hey, Mark Green here. If you love the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast, you'll want to listen to my Cars Yeah podcast, where over five years, I've interviewed over 1,475 inspiring automotive enthusiasts. You'll have free access to my guest shows five days a week. These are amazing people who share their world around cars, trucks, and motorcycles. I take a deep dive into their businesses and they share with you how they've wrapped their passion for vehicles into their lives. Plus, go to the CarsYeah.com website and hit the free book button, and I'll email you my free filler-up book. It's an ebook filled with beautiful fuel filler fun 
and inspiring quotes from my past guests. Once subscribed, you'll get my weekly blog as well. You can find all the Cars Yeah shows on CarsYeah.com or on any mobile device using your podcast app. Just search for Cars Yeah Podcast and subscribe today. That way you'll get both Buy, Sell, Hold with Keith and me and the Cars Yeah Podcast delivered right to your mobile device or your computer. Thanks for listening. We hope to have shed some light today on the collector car market. You can listen to all the Buy, Sell, Hold podcasts at sportscarmarket.com and carsyeah.com. You'll find hundreds of inspiring automotive enthusiasts on the Cars Yeah website as well. Be sure to log into sportscarmarket.com and subscribe to Keith's SCM Weekly Newsletter. You'll find digital issues, insider event guides, and price guides, along with our platinum database, column profiles, classifieds, and many other resources. Join Keith and Mark next week to hear from another automotive industry leader who will help you determine when to buy, sell, or hold.